Welcome and thank you for joining today's conference, What Matters Now? Investing in today's critical transformations through ETFs. All audio lines have been muted. Please type any questions you may have into the Q&A box and press send. Questions will be addressed during the Q&A portion of this call. Today's discussion may contain forward-looking statements. All statements that are made are not historical facts or are subject to a risk and uncertainty. Actual results may differ materially. Please refer to ARS's website for important legal and disclosure information. With that, I'll turn the call over to Stephen Burke. Thank you, Sarah. <clears throat> On behalf of the team at ARS, good afternoon and welcome to the latest installment of the ARS What Matters Now series. Today we'll be we will be discussing investing in today's critical transformations through exchange traded funds. I'm joined today by my friend, Sean Lawless. Sean is a partner at ARS and a portfolio manager who's responsible for our multi-strategy portfolios. I've been in the business since 1981 and one of the more fascinating aspects of the investment industry is its ability to uh, evolved to the ever-changing global economic, social, and political conditions by introducing new investment products. For ARS, it's not about offering the latest fad products, but offering only those investments that we believe are appropriate for our clients and their long-term needs. And as you can see, we've been expanding our offering in recent years. On the call today, Sean will be discussing how we marry our investment outlook, which we've done since the early 70s, with exchange-traded funds through our ARS-focused ETF strategy. The call should last about 30 to 40 minutes, and I'll be asking Sean a series of questions about the strategy, and then we'll take questions from participants. So let's get started. Sean, would you give some background on the ETF industry? Uh, sure, and, and good afternoon, everybody. For our listeners who maybe aren't real familiar with the ETF industry, just real quickly, an exchange-traded fund is a basket of securities that are listed on a stock exchange to trade as a single security, so no different than a stock. Um, and you can see the industry has experienced some impressive growth since it was launched in 93. And I think that's in no small part, Stephen, to their simplicity. And I, I really don't mean that in a negative sense. An ETF's goal is simply to replicate the performance of an index. They're extremely liquid. Uh, very easy to trade and really have become a very efficient way to get market exposure. So the industry's grown to uh, roughly $6 trillion since the first ETF was offered in 93. And that initial ETF was a replication of the S&P 500 index. And uh, the majority of, of the assets in the early days were in the S&P 500. It expanded out some other, to some other broad-based indices and then the industry's next evolution was to offer uh, ETFs that provided just the sector exposure of the index. So you could have a more narrow focus uh, in your investment. And that led to, you know, we went from sectors to industries to sub-industries. And then the latest addition has been active ETFs. And as one would guess, an active ETF allows the investment manager to determine which securities to buy and hold uh, in contrast to just an index replication. And while active ETFs have been around since 2008 and they've been getting a little bit more press lately, Stephen, I, I would tell you that the ETF industry is still pretty much uh, a passive game. 
um, of that 5.9 trillion, over 96% of it is still managed to an index. Great. Show would you describe the ARS approach to focus ETF investing? Yeah, I'm gonna, I'm gonna take a little leeway here and, and start with a little bit of a history. Uh, we've been managing ETF portfolios since 2014 through a relationship we have with a bank trust department. And given these were special needs trusts, we manage those portfolios very closely to the market index given the investor profile and the, the trust committee's guidelines. But uh, they were a fantastic vehicle to deliver uh, what we were doing for them. Uh, as you know, the, the special needs trust area, there's a high velocity of, of cash flows and the liquidity uh, that the ETS provided were a great way to manage to it. But we started having internal discussions in 2016 around the idea of what if we take a high conviction approach with ETFs using our outlook as the driver. And in 2017, uh, the second quarter of 2017, consistent with our philosophy of investing alongside clients, we started managing our first focused ETF portfolio for an employee's family. And uh, you'll remember this well, uh, because it was the Burke family that was our first investor. So the portfolio strategy was really formed around the value proposition that our outlook offers. We've had a long history of success with the outlook and, and we really think it has great application within the passive ETF market. So getting to our process, you know, our process is the same singular process that we apply to all of our strategies, starting with defining the global environment and the beneficiaries of those capital flows. Next, the evaluating and sel selecting securities. In this instance, those securities are going to be the ETFs, which we then use to construct the portfolio. And during the process, all along the process, we're managing and assessing risk based on a, on a probability basis. And, and I would say our approach incorporates aspects of both passive and active management for this strategy. And, and why do I say that? Well, we look at the outlook as the active component of our process. And it's what differentiates us from the typical passive investor. Once we've identified the beneficiaries of the environment, we believe in a high conviction approach and concentrate our holdings and select industry and sector ETFs. And typically that's gonna be six to 10 uh, investments. And currently we're, we're holding system, six investments in the portfolio. And, and that's the passive component of the process, the ETFs themselves. So, you know, you can look at the approach as being active industry selection with passive stock selection. And I would say the outlook tends to lead us towards long-term secular trends in the economy, as well as some tactical opportunities that are actionable uh, more immediately. So Sean, how is the strategy currently positioned? Yeah, I, I would break the portfolio's exposures currently into two buckets and each represent you know, roughly half of the portfolio. The first would be long-term secular trends and the other would be the more direct beneficiaries of the current environment. So let me start with the, <clears throat> excuse me, the long-term trends. And these are trends we think are likely to attract capital uh, for the next multiple years, if, if not decades. 
And our investments here are focused on the digital transformation and the climate transformation that we've highlighted in our previous outlooks. So starting with the digital transformation, you know, Stephen, we've talked about how the pandemic has really accelerated the adoption of many technologies, really out of necessity. And I'd say the key word here is adoption because many of these businesses will continue to thrive in a post-pandemic world. And you know, one of the areas we're excited about is the rollout of the 5G network. You know, we've said <clears throat> you know, for some time now that 5G is the platform that really drives that next level of innovation. When you think about the speeds, uh, the download speeds, uh, the volume of data that the network is gonna enable, that's what's really going to unleash the power of artificial intelligence and machine learning. And then when you combine that with the low latency, uh, I mean, it really makes uh, services like autonomous driving a possibility. But these are benefits that are, are really ahead of us as the impact of 5G is still years away. Um, as you know, the, the government auctioned off Spectrum uh, late last year, and you know, we saw the results of that auction uh, you know, earlier this year. Uh, I think the total uh, amount of the auction uh, was over $80 billion, and a big participant in that uh, auction was Verizon. They spent over $50 billion. But if you listen, there was an investor call uh, by Verizon, I guess about three or four weeks ago now, but they talked about uh, the spectrum that they're getting uh, via this auction, and they get the first tranche of that towards the end of this year, and then get a larger tranche of it towards the end of next year. So we're still a bit away from, you know, seeing that full impact uh, of the network. So we've really only begun to scratch the surface when it comes to the benefit of data analytics. And, uh, you know, we've talked about this positive feedback loop where uh, you have more data feeding into the machine learning algorithms, which makes them better, which leads to better outcomes, which means more services, more devices, which means more data and so on. So the, the loop sort of feeds itself to better and better outcomes um, because of it. But I'd like to talk about that, that component there, the better business outcomes, because I really think it's, it's underappreciated. Now, I just said that the benefits of 5G are ahead of us, but that doesn't mean we're not experiencing other benefits today. And I'm going to reference a letter to JP, JP Morgan shareholders that Jamie Dimon uh, wrote, um, in which it, it really highlights this. And, and I'm going to remind our callers, Jamie Dimon's the CEO of JP Morgan. He's not the CEO of a tech fund. So, you know, he's coming at coming at it from a perspective of somebody using the technology, not somebody selling it. So just thinking about the letter and, and, and he, he actually dedicated a section of the letter just to, the, to what they're doing as far as uh, investments in technology. And, and in it, he says, these are, these are Jamie Dimon's words, the power of the cloud is real. And he talks about how JP Morgan was a little bit slow in adopting the cloud, which he says he was partially responsible for. 
because when he thought about cloud computing, his, his early take on it was the cloud is just another term for outsourcing, right? And he, and he thought, it, you know, he was thinking about it. He says, listen, you know, we got some smart people at JP Morgan. They can run our data centers, our networks, you know, our apps efficiently as anyone. Um, so, you know, he was, he, he was less uh, excited about it. He said, but then the light bulb clicked. The point he was missing, and it was a critical point, is that the cloud's capabilities are far more expensive, or expensive, extensive. And he talks about how that now they're they're all in on cloud. And by that, you know, just think about this: their technology spend, their budget is eleven billion dollars a year. And I want to highlight some of the the. Um, impacts it's had on, on JP Morgan's business. He talks, and he talks about quite a few of them, but I'll highlight a couple here. He talked about, you know, they were able, being able to approve a million additional good customers through machine learning that historically they would have declined because of potential for fraud. On top of that, they also declined roughly a million additional fraudsters that previously would have been approved. And he also talks about how machine learnings helped them in other areas um, in check fraud. He said, uh, you know, the ability to analyze, uh, analyze signatures, uh, payee names, or just uh, the checks themselves, uh, some of the features around the checks where they can in seconds uh, figure out whether it's a good check or a bad check. And he talks about the, you know, how all of this is dropping to the bottom line. And the point he was driving home was they're seeing real results from their investments. And as I mentioned, you know, with a tech budget of 11 billion annually, and it's not just JP Morgan, Bank of America spending 10 billion uh, a year in technology, City 9 billion, Wells Fargo 8 billion. So we're talking about a lot of capital flowing into the sector as companies, you know, see the benefits of those uh, investments and also see the need to stay competitive. And we could talk about really any industry, Stephen, um, as it, uh, when it comes to this. And, I, and I'll give you one more example, that being uh, the energy sector. And uh, I would imagine our callers probably don't associate uh, you know, oil companies with high tech. But I was reminded of the efficiency gains that the industry has seen when our colleague Andrew Schmeidler mentioned in, the, in our morning meeting the other day, a report on the break-even levels for crude that the OPEC nations are putting into their budgets. And, you know, it brought me back to 2014 when we saw oil crash from you know, $100 plus a barrel to, I think, ultimately, we hit a low of $26 a barrel. But you might recall, the discussions back then were that the U.S. fracking industry, you know, couldn't survive with anything below $75 to $70 a barrel for, for crude oil. Well, you know, looking back now, I mean, we probably averaged just around $50 a barrel since 2015. And not only did the U.S. oil patch survive, think about it, in 2019, U.S. set a record for oil production at 12 million barrels per day. Um, 
And you ask yourself how? Well, the industry was a big adopter of using big data, artificial intelligence and machine learning to drive down costs. Uh, they started, you know, it's interesting because I was down, as you know, I was down in Texas, I was down in Houston in 2016 on a, on a due diligence visit uh, regarding some, some energy lending that, that we had for clients. And I met with an oil petroleum uh, engineer and we were talking about just this thing because I was saying to him, you know, how are you guys surviving? I think at the time uh, crude was trading in the 40s and he said, just that we've made tremendous uh, improvements because of our use of technology. They monitor everything now at the wellhead. Uh, they're monitoring pressures, basically every valves. Their efficiency of drawing the product out of the ground has improved dramatically. Their drilling process, now through machine learning. They're, remember, this is horizontal drilling. Uh, part of the problem they have is when they hit a large uh, rock formation, it takes time to then back away from it. The, the rigs are down for a period of time. Now at machine learning, they're able to avoid those uh, formations and keep the rigs up running, uh, you know, full time. So all of this uh, has led to a much more efficient uh, way of drilling. And you know, as I said, they, they've survived in this low commodity price environment. And, and that's really the theme that we're seeing in tech, in tech investing across industries. Increase productivity, do more with less, and ultimately drive costs down and profits higher. And we think technology broadly continues to track capital uh, as companies across industries that really have to invest here to remain cap, you know, competitive. And we've captured uh, these trends through the uh, technology sector ETF. Thanks, Sean. That's a great example of uh, the broad sector exposure. Can you talk a little bit more about a more focused industry investment? Yeah, sure. Uh, we've got a meaningful investment in the semiconductor industry. Semiconductors are a critical component within the technology ecosystem. Right? You think about it, they're, they're so critical that it became the flashpoint of the Trump administration's trade policies with China and has been called uh, a strategic emphasis for investment by the Biden administration if the US is to maintain their global leadership in technology. <clears throat> Now, uh, I imagine our callers have probably been hearing uh, a bit about the global chip shortage. It's, it's been in the mainstream news. And, you know, that shortage has really been driven by demand. Um, you know, I'm just going to focus on one industry here, the, the automobile industry, just to give you a sense of the demand that semiconductors are seeing. You know, consider that the, the growth rate of dollars being spent on semiconductor chips for autos, um, you know, with demand expected to compound at almost 18% annually, that, that's a huge number over the next five years as consumers demand, it's really being driven by consumer demand for all the latest safety features in, in cars. Think about things like collision detection systems, navigation controls, parking assistance, emergency braking, and you know the infotainment systems in cars now, uh, all of these things. There's even a, uh, an AI enhanced chip that deploys airbags faster, 
right? So you have all of these features which require more and more semiconductor chips. And at that 17.9% annual growth rate, you know, it's quite possible that that's, you know, going to be understated if the shift to electric vehicles happens at a faster pace, right? And, and you know, that's certainly not out of the question when you see governments around the world mandating zero emission vehicle targets, right? And you have the auto manufacturers all pushing towards greater electric vehicle production, you know? So, so why does that matter to the semiconductor industry? It's because EVs or electric vehicles require greater semiconductor chip content. And that's mainly due to the fact that their role, the semiconductor chip's role in the battery management systems and, and the power management systems, it requires more chips, right? So the chip shortage is, is you know, it's a little bit painful right now. You're seeing in the auto manufacturing space, they're having to shut down some factories because they can't get enough chips uh, for the cars. We saw a GM shut down, I believe it's three factories at this point, uh, Ford shut down a couple. So you might ask yourself, you know, why doesn't the semiconductor, you know, companies just ramp up production? And Stephen, as we know, that's easier said than done. Um, there's, you know, for lack of a better word, I'll just call them some barriers uh, to that capacity. Uh, the first is the manufacturing process itself, particularly at the high end uh, for the most advanced chips, is a very sophisticated manufacturing process. It's been, it's something that the, the industry knowledge is really concentrated in just a few manufacturers that can do it. So it's, you know, that's a barrier. It's, it's it, number one, it's just not an easy thing to do. Uh, two, um, you know, it's, it's somewhat cost prohibitive too. Uh, we just saw an announcement um, over the last, you know, quarter that, excuse me, Taiwan Semiconductor, one of the leading manufacturers of semiconductor chips has just announced they're building a, a new fab to produce uh, semiconductors in Arizona. Samsung, again, another leading manufacturer, just announced a plan uh, to, to open a, a, a fab here in the States as well. I think they've settled on Texas. I don't know if that's been finalized. And, uh, you know, just this morning, uh, we saw come across the wire that Intel is going to build two new factories uh, out in Arizona. But the cost of each of these factories, um, you know, uh, Taiwan Semi and Samsung are talking about between 12 billion to 15 billion for each of these factories. Uh, the number today by Intel was 10 billion each uh, for those factories. So uh, again, costly to, to build. And then the last thing I would say is, you know, once these things, you know, Taiwan's uh, breaking ground, Taiwan Semiconductor's breaking ground on this facility, it's going to be another two years before they're actually are going to be able to ramp and and drive production out of there. So we're going to be in this environment, this period where the semiconductor uh, chip uh, makers and, and and providers are going to have firm pricing, right? And, and we think it lasts, you know, into 2022. So 
you know, autos are just one example of that demand pull. We could talk about others, you know, through uh, data centers and the like. So that demand is going to be there. The capacity is hard to bring on. Um, so you're going to want exposure uh, to the semi-space. We talk, you know, uh, our colleague Ross Taylor is fond of saying, you know, own the arms merchants, right, to that spend. And semiconductor, the semiconductor industry is the arms merchant to all of this activity, to whether it's autos, whether it's data centers uh, and the like, uh, you're going to want exposure there. And this ETF gives us exposure to that entire value chain, whether it's the manufacturers, uh, the companies providing the equipment uh, or the chip designers themselves. I'll throw that back to you. Thanks, Sean. You mentioned the climate transformation. How's that theme being reflected in the portfolio? Yeah, well, it, you know, we just talked about the push towards electric vehicles and, and just in general, the low carbon emissions uh, due to climate change. And, and that really leads us to the, the final investment in this, what I'll call the long-term secular bucket, and that's clean energy. And the ETF here is, is focused on solar power, wind power, and, and the infrastructure um, that's needed to support those efforts. I'm going to uh, uh, highlight some information that just came out of uh, a Wood McKenzie. It's a consultant. Uh, Wood McKenzie had a report on the solar industry that showed the solar industry had a record year last year, despite the pandemic. Installations grew at over 40% year over year. Uh, they reached a record of nine, over 19 gigawatts of new capacity coming online. Solar represented over 43% of all new electricity generating capacity last year. And the US now has over 97 gigawatts of solar capacity installed. And just to give you a framework, that's enough to power almost 18 million homes. And the report uh, forecasts that the solar market's gonna quadruple by 2030. So we believe clean energy is an area that's going to continue to attract capital. Uh, expect the, the Biden infrastructure plan will certainly have resources targeted towards, you know, solar and wind projects. And Stephen, let's not forget about the private sector. You know, um, we've talked about this somewhat strange bedfellows where you have, uh, you know, the, the, the oil companies investing in, into the renewable energy market, right? EP, British Petroleum, they've committed to spend over $5 billion a year in renewable energy. Royal Dutch Shell, they announced earlier this year they're going to spend 25% of total CapEx in low-carbon energy by 2025, and that equates to roughly $5 billion annually. And Total has said they're going to invest $3 billion annually by 2030, and they put their money where their mouth is. Earlier this year, they announced $2.5 billion investment in a developer of solar and wind projects. So we look at renewable energy as an area that's probably hitting an inflection point where it's going to embark on a long run where they attract uh, capital investment. And this ETF is, uh, I think, a great way to get exposure to that trend. Thank you. Well, you've covered the long-term secular trends. Can you touch on the more immediate opportunities we're seeing? 
Yeah, you know, we've talked about the unprecedented amount of monetary and fiscal support that's been, you know, that's been put forth to, to, to combat the pandemic. And during our last call, we highlighted um, the three drivers of demand in the economy, that being the consumer, corporations, and governments. And we believe that all three of them are turning up right now and it's gonna to lead to a surge in economic activity. And we really wanna have exposure to that cyclical bounce in the economy. So, you know, starting with the consumer, you can see uh, the consumer savings rate spiked during the, the onset of the, the pandemic, which, which makes sense, right? We had strict lockdown, so it was really difficult to actually spend if you wanted to, other than essentials. So as the lockdown eased, you see that the savings rate began to fall, but we're still at elevated levels. And it's estimated that consumers are sitting on $2 trillion in excess cash that's, that's going to work its way back into the economy over the next two years. And, and that's the pent-up demand that we're talking about. That's the pent-up demand that's going to drive economic activity. And you add to that with an opening economy, that means there's gonna be more hiring, so more jobs, right? So that's also gonna drive consumption. So, you know, one of the areas we like against this backdrop is the financial sector. Financials are high, highly correlated with GDP growth and should do well in an accelerating uh, economy. So uh, against that backdrop, we've added that exposure. And if we turn to the corporate sector, you know, when, you know, we saw a similar situation with capital expenditures dropping at the onset of the pandemic as companies sort of pulled their oars in. And now we've seen spending the capital expenditures rebound to pre-pandemic pre levels. And we expect that spending to start to accelerate as the economy kicks in here. So we expect to see uh, a fair amount of onshoring <clears throat> I just gave you an example of, of what's going on in the semiconductor industry space with four fabs uh, that'll be coming online in the US uh, over the next couple of years. And that's, that's just uh, a couple of, I think we've now had over 40 uh, onshoring uh, efforts announced uh, you know, through February. So uh, we see that onshoring coming on. Uh, we think there's going to be a fair amount of capital expenditures going to areas like robotics, uh, technology, really in an effort to stay competitive. And that spend's going to boost productivity and ultimately lower costs, which will lower inflation long term. Um, and we're also looking at, at uh, the infrastructure plan. That's going to help drive profit growth in certain sectors as well. Uh, and as that profit growth uh, kicks in, that allows, again, more investment in the way of capital expenditures, more investment in, into the businesses. So we've invested in an ETF here that uh, really to get exposures to the industrial companies, uh, the materials, uh, uh, the material sector and the transportation sector. Um, you know, you think about, uh, you know, you've got an economy where the factories are kicking in, producing goods, they've got to get it out to the warehouses. 
uh, from the warehouses, you've got to get it to the stores or, or direct to consumer. So transportation um, is really levered to, to the rebound in economic activity, as are the industries and, <clears throat> excuse me, the industrials and the material companies. So uh, we're, you know, we've got the exposure there to get, to get access to that, uh, to that rebound. And then lastly, on the demand side, <clears throat> excuse me, I just wanted to touch on, uh, on the government <clears throat> as that third driver of, of pent-up demand. And, you know, we've, seen, we've talked about this for many years uh, with clients, and that's the, the poor state of repair of the country's infrastructure. The American Society of Civil Engineers just released their latest report. They do this report uh, every four years. And uh, to no surprise, the neglect continued and the cost of repair continues to climb higher, right? The, you know, the report card improved a little, <laughs> but if you look, the, the, the cost of repair continues to grow. Uh, we're now at 5.9 trillion. That's up from 4.6 trillion in 17. And the funding gap has increased to over 2.6 trillion. So when we think about infrastructure, <clears throat> the needs really go uh, beyond just roads, rails, and bridges to things like education and the digital infrastructure. And you know, we've really reached a point as a nation where you, we really can no longer, no longer put off the investment. So uh, you know, and clearly there's a concern about uh, you know the you know, paying for this. But I, the one thing I would remind folks is that a properly directed plan, which creates jobs, uh, improves productivity, which leads to higher profitability for the private sector, which results in higher tax revenue for the treasury. So it's, it's not just an expense. Um, there's some real benefits to it. Um, so against this backdrop, and I'll just kind of wrap this up here, uh, you know, focusing on, on some of the demand, you see how that plays into to the GDP numbers. Um, so the scenario we just laid out for a growing economy, you can see the street estimates for, for the GDP forecast are, are pretty impressive. And just to put it in some perspective, uh, the U.S. hasn't had a seven handle on GDP since 1984. And I think during that time, I think we only hit a five handle uh, a handful of times. Um, and that just leads me to our final investment in that immediate opportunity bucket. And, and that is energy. Um, an expanding economy means higher energy use. And we added a, an investment in an ETF that gives us exposure to the, the global energy majors. And when you look at energy consumption as it pertains to crude, transportation makes up 75% of that demand. And when we look at the US, passenger transportation makes up 65% of that total. And clearly with an opening economy, passenger travel is going to increase. Um, you know, we talked about the pent-up demand. Uh, people are looking uh, to travel uh, just, you know, from a vacation standpoint. But throw on top of that, the opening of the economy means people are now going to be going back to work, albeit we will we'll have some, uh, you know, loss of that to 
stay at home and work from, you know, remotely, but we're going to have more people back on the roads without question. Um, so we see that increase uh, of travel, uh, passenger travel, really uh, igniting demand and starting a demand pull that has been obviously really crimped uh, during the pandemic. And then that other 35% of, of transportation comes from freight, uh, which is going to benefit from the expanding economy. As I just mentioned, you, you know, you've got to get uh, materials moved around uh, to the producers. You've got to get goods to the stores and, and to the consumers. And that's all done through our network of freight, which uh, again is a demand pull now uh, uh, for for the for the energy industry. So, you know, I would, I would add to that. We think pricing for the commodity for for crude, you know, probably stays firm here. Uh, certainly for uh, a short period of time. Anyway, as you saw, uh, OPEC remains committed to supporting the price here. Uh, we think they probably stay, uh, you know, in a supportive mode uh, for a bit. You've had underinvestment or, or call it uh, discipline from the U.S. operators. When you look at the rig counts, they're, they're still pretty low. So we think the supply side probably stays in check near term. And uh, this is a sector that, that really took it on the chin and, and we think uh, has some, some room to, uh, to move from here. Thanks, Sean. We'll now open it up to uh, questions. So if you have any questions, please put it into the submit one into the Q&A. We have one in there already, but we did receive one prior to uh, the call. So Sean, would you please talk about how you use the strategy in client portfolios? Yeah. Um, I think, you know, one of the things I, I think this really the strategy really provides is, is a complement to a core portfolio that allows you to tilt it towards uh, the beneficiaries uh, that we have that we have identified. So if you have a view that's very much aligned with our outlook, you can take this strategy and use it as almost an overlay to tilt the portfolio to get exposures to them. And clearly, if you've got a passive portfolio, uh, just a core passive portfolio, something like the S&P, this is, a, again, a great way to, uh, to tilt the portfolio uh, to get those exposures. And then uh, the other thing I'll mention, I, I think it's a great way to get access to our macro views for smaller accounts. Um, so if you have, uh, you know, I, I think of it uh, dealing with clients with, uh, you know, children and grandchildren where they're they're just starting out their their investment journey and and they're and they're putting some money to work uh, in small amounts early on. Our ability to manage uh, assets in uh, in smaller levels, the ETFs just provide a uh, a pretty efficient way uh, to do that. So I would I would throw that in there as another way that um, that we're using it, which is great for gifting for grandchildren and the like, helping them get started. So. Thank you. Sean, we have two questions from the audience. Uh, I'll take the first and you can take the second. Clearly the second one's harder. Um, the first one is who regulates ETFs and make sure they hold and can safeguard what they claim to own on behalf of investors. <clears throat> uh, <clears throat> excuse me, ETFs are uh, like other registered securities and are regulated by, in this case, the SEC. Um, 
who is uh, focused on the uh, safeguarding of uh, investors. At ARS, we actually work with uh, the leading ETF providers and are very focused on making sure that we're investing with uh, the brand names who also have the size and scale uh, to uh, back the claims that are among the most reputable companies. So firms like uh, BlackRock and PIMCO and State Street Bank and Vanguard are among the, the companies we would use in that area. So uh, the combination of the due diligence that uh, Sean and Brian Barry on our team do in, in focusing on, on this and the overall regulatory framework that the US provides for exchange traded funds uh, is uh, the key element there for us. Sean, the second question to you is, uh, does the firm ever consider buying call option leaps on high conviction ETFs to gain access to greater leverage? Uh, the short answer is no, we haven't. And part of the reason for that, Stephen, is, is we think we're pretty high conviction uh, in our approach to begin with. Um, so we really haven't thought about um, you know, driving that conviction even higher. Uh, so uh, the short answer is no. Um, doesn't mean uh, you know as we think about things down the road that that potentially could be an option. But we think we're, you know, the way we're positioned and, and the way we think about things is is pretty high conviction as is. It's also interesting that the industry has a series of uh, double and triple levered uh, exposures on more of the mainstream benchmarks like the S&P 500, um, what you find is the, uh, the strategies in, in when they're fully levered don't always work the way you would expect them to in the up and down environments. So uh, we find that the levered uh, ETFs don't always perform the way you would expect them to, which actually limits their value with that. So whether you do it outside or inside, uh, there are different experiences with that as well. I think that uh, covers all the submitted calls. So with that, we will thank you all for joining us today. We appreciate the opportunity to <clears throat> serve all our clients and uh, believe that the extension of new strategies uh, is, uh, is critical uh, going forward um, and that it, it actually helps us evolve to meet the ever-changing needs of client portfolios. Um, so that's uh, something that uh, we're very focused on. We also appreciate the trust you place in us every day. And actually we had two more questions come in. Um, <clears throat> uh, will you be sharing the slides and uh, uh, this presentation will be posted on our website and uh, uh, will be available uh, that way. Uh, probably takes us about 24 hours to post. And then we got a subsequent question what strategies uh, do you recommend to minimize the likely tax impacts on investment returns? And uh, uh, right now that with the tax laws potentially changing, we're gonna have to see how that goes, but um, we would deal with that on an individual client by client basis. So uh, we'd be happy to talk to you about that on a one-on-one -on -one basis, um, but we are very cognizant of uh, tax, uh, tax changes. And in this strategy, um, we have a significant portion that are tied to our secular themes, which helps minimize taxes. 
where you would likely see more is on some of the cyclical uh, strategies that we're employing. So uh, happy to talk one-on-one -on -one in that area as well. So thank you for joining us today and thank you for the trust you place in us. Uh, if you know of anybody who could, this uh, strategy would be appropriate for, uh, please let us know or please feel free to recommend them to us. And as always, uh, all referrals are appreciated. So thank you very much for the time and for joining us today. Have a great day. Thank you.